0: Research that changes lives. Four simple words inspiring researchers at the University of Leeds to reshape the world. I am Professor Simone Boutenlay. Since arriving at the university in 2020 as Vice-Chancellor, I've been amazed by the passion, creativity, and ingenuity of the research community to make a difference.
1: Having the opportunity to exercise choice is really you know, key to palliative care and it, that individualised care that supports the person in the last few months of life.
0: We need to learn from the mistakes that we've made and we need to learn from the instances where prevention of atrocities work.
1: I think the COVID-19 pandemic actually forced us to become a little bit more digitally literate, although I do think we still have some room to kind of continue growing.
0: One of my priorities has been to learn more about the sheer range of research carried out by early career researchers at Leeds. They are the new generation of world changers, people working tirelessly with communities and academics around the world on finding solutions to seemingly intractable problems. Over the course of this podcast series, I will be in conversation with those researchers Join me as our world changers describe new discoveries and approaches that will make the world a better and more equitable place to live. It's about research that changes lives. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Professor Simone Buitendag, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Leeds. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with Dr. Leah Henriksen from the School of Media and Communication. We will be discussing digital literacy and the university's digital transformation strategy, which will enable leads to engage with new communities anywhere in the world, be they people who want to study with us online or find out more about our research. Digital transformation, argues Dr. Henriksen should not only focus on technology and platforms, but importantly, how people interact with that technology. Hello, Leah. and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Wonderful. Um, so let me start by asking you what attracted you to media studies?
1: So I actually got into media studies through books. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved spending time in my local library. My mom would take me to the bookstore and we would flip through books for hours on end. And I was fascinated with the idea that you can have access to so much knowledge and so many stories through these books. As I got older and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to study at university, I realized that I can study this. I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto. I got to focus on book studies with a little bit of media studies in there. I then did my master's degree at the University of London, but I focused on the history of the book. Then I started thinking about. Where the book is going to be in ten years, in fifty years, and what is the future of the book? And that's how I got into studying things like artificial intelligence and digital media specifically.
0: That's that's fascinating. And and you mentioned you were interested in what the future is of the book. Of course, the book is not gone, but it has changed a lot. The way we can spread knowledge, and um, of course, with digital media, everything is is different, expanded. I probably should say. How does that approach changed with digital media?
1: Yeah. I mean, as you say, the book is still with us. There's nothing wrong with a good book. I I love me a good book. Uh, but I think digital media allow us so many different new and exciting ways to express ourselves and to communicate knowledge, to tell our stories. And so I think these digital media, they, they stand alongside more traditional media like books, like newspapers, and they just give us another layer of self-expression, another way of increasing interpersonal understanding and telling our stories the way that we want to tell them.
0: Your essay focuses, I think, rightfully on digital literacy, because of course, if we want to use these digital media effectively, we, we need to be digitally literate. Can you explain a bit more what digital literacy is for you in your research, but maybe also in your daily life?
1: we hear a lot about literacy and usually when we talk about literacy we're talking about textual literacy so the ability to to read digital literacy takes it a little bit further so if we want to explain digital literacy there are generally three things that digital literacy includes so let's use a phone as as an example the first is functional literacy so being able to use the technology to kind of complete basic tasks to participate in everyday life. So for a phone, that could be making a call, sending a text message. The next level, once you get the functional level down, is critical literacy. So it's asking those questions about, okay, but why does the phone work the way it does? Who's doing the programming? Who is selling you that product? Who is financially profiting? What are the power structures behind that? What are the intentions? And it's asking those why questions. And then the final step, once you get the functional and critical literacy down, is this internalized state where you embed the technology into your everyday activity to suit your needs and your wants.
0: That internalization, is that a psychological process or is it something else? How does that work for for people?
1: There's so much room for exploration in this area. I'm glad you asked this question because it's a question I can't answer, to be honest. We have some research out there about the effects of textual literacy on the brain. So there are some cognitive scientists who have studied the effects of textual literacy on thinking processes and what areas of the brain light up when you read, we don't really have that research for digital media yet, there's a lot of work to be done. I've recently written a paper it's under review right now. So fingers crossed that it gets accepted, but it's all about arguing for, we need to do this research. It's arguing about this internalization of digital media and, and saying we need to figure out how our brains work because we know that when we use different technologies, we we process information differently. We ask different questions. We we use different problem-solving techniques, but we don't actually know what the psychological processes are behind that. So there's a lot of work to be done in this area.
0: Oh, I'm looking forward to that paper. It sounds fascinating.
1: Me too. <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> so, so can I continue on that theme of di- digital literacy? What would you say are the levels of digital literacy in the general community, but for me, even more interestingly, maybe in the student population, I think we older people in academia often assume that students are digitally literate, that digital natives is a term that's been floating around a while ago. I don't think that that's necessarily the case, but I'd, I'd love to get your take on it.
1: Yeah. I think we, we have a decent level. Uh, amongst the student population of functional literacy. We see our students, they are comfortable uploading their documents to submissions portals. They use social media, they're texting on their phone. They are using these technologies in very functional ways to communicate with other people and that's, that's great. I teach the BA students in digital media and the MA students in new media. And what we are urging students to do through these courses is to think more critically about how and why they use technologies and I think our students in general they know how to log on to the internet they know how to use these programs and they're comfortable doing that but what they're not so comfortable with is asking those critical questions related to power structures and why things work the way they do and do they have to be that way so What we're urging students to do in our own courses, but also throughout the university, is to ask those critical questions, ask the why. When we taught online entirely last year due to COVID-19 restrictions, and All of a sudden, we were almost forced to ask those questions, so we had to very quickly, as university staff and students, become comfortable with functionally using these technologies, being able to log on to Teams, to Zoom, to, you know, use the whiteboard on Zoom, use breakout rooms, but we also had to think very critically about what technologies we were using, right? There was a whole conversation about Zoom and, and data privacy. Does Zoom adhere to GDPR? Like these are all questions that are examples of critical digital literacy. So I think the COVID-19 pandemic actually forced us to become a little bit more digitally literate, although I do think we still have some room to kind of continue growing in this area.
0: And what kind of questions do you ask your students to pursue? And and I'm specifically interested in the more ethical end of those questions. Cause I think a lot of the problems that popped up were ethical issues around indeed inclusion or the lack thereof and GDPR and privacy. Can you give an example of, sort of ethical questions that your students are pushed to, to answer, even if it's a bit uncomfortable for them?
1: Yeah. One example of. ethical discussion that we have a lot is related to data collection. GDPR is all about data collection and data storage and the regulations that we have in place to protect everyday folks and maintain their privacy.
0: For listeners who are not aware, can you explain what GDPR means?
1: Yeah, so the General Data Protection Act is a European Union regulation that was put in place a few years ago. It's essentially an advocacy policy on, on behalf of consumers and and everyday people to make sure that their data isn't being used inappropriately and that only the data that people need is being collected and stored. So data collection is a really rich area of discussion for the ethical issues about digital technologies.
0: Yeah, thank you. that was really helpful. I I want to ask you something slightly different. I know you ran an experiment in one of your classes in uh, 2021 last year. Can you can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because what I read about it, it sounds absolutely fascinating, the digital storytelling.
1: Yeah, um, it was a series of experiments. I think I run a second year module for undergraduates called digital storytelling, and it's all about giving students the opportunity to explore different ways of communicating using digital technologies this module attracts students from across the school of media and communication. So we have some journalists, we have some exchange students, we have some language students, students with very little experience using digital technologies in kind of practical ways. So what I decided to do in this class this year was just throw all of the things that I wanted to try, but had always been a bit too scared to try at the students all at once. So I dove in head first. I decided, I was like, you know, what would be cool? A class playlist. So the students got together and throughout the module, we would listen to a playlist when the students were doing independent work in the workshops, but they got to decide what the class sounded like. And it was this really subtle way of giving students agency, in the class and saying you know you decide what we listen to while this happens you are in control here we we tried out so many different digital technologies we tried out things like gather town which is an online kind of virtual space where you use avatars and you can build rooms and make the room look exactly like what you want it to we made interactive narratives we did films we did photo essays we made memes um, and we talked about how memes could be a form of storytelling and I think it just ended up being this hodgepodge of digital technologies and at the core of it was the student. Throughout this whole process, the students were encouraged to tell their own personal stories. So they were reflecting on their own lives and I would give them theory and then tell them, you have to apply this theory to your own lives and then tell a digital story using this method. So they were constantly reflecting on their own personal experiences and perspectives, but the outcome wasn't an essay or a a written piece of work. It was a series of digital stories.
0: Amazing. Amazing. And students loved this, didn't they?
1: I have never gotten such good feedback on my teaching. They absolutely loved it. And I've also never given out such high grades. My check marker, the person who checks to make sure that my marking is, is fine. Um, my check marker and I were both absolutely blown away by the quality and the insight that this work demonstrated. The students were really self-reflective, but they also engaged really critically with the concepts that I had introduced in the class. I think they also just enjoyed not having to write an essay in the humanities. They're constantly writing essays. I'm an academic, I love me a good essay, but they got to be a little bit more creative and they got to choose what form they told their story in and communicate their knowledge and insight in ways that they felt best suited them.
0: This is really fascinating, Leah. I'm just wondering, as you're talking, how applicable this this storytelling and students to to learn how to do that and to be creative, uh, would be to more lab based work, for instance, and and to learn to tell a story about engineering or science or other things and their own experiences. Can Can you comment on that?
1: Of course. So. My group of students was predominantly from media and communication. They're predominantly from humanities backgrounds, and they're used to doing a lot of writing. They're used to doing quite a bit of of verbal communication as well. In more science subjects, mathematics, technology, where they're doing more practical work, they're doing more math kind of numerical work. I think this could still apply. No matter what field of study you're in, whether you're a student or a staff member, you need to be able to communicate your ideas effectively, you need to figure out who your audience is, and you need to meet your audience halfway. And digital media give us more options for where we meet our audience. With students in in more science and mathematics subjects, these kinds of storytelling methods give them ways to explore that content from using new perspectives, using new means of expression they can communicate their knowledge in different ways that might complement the work that they're already doing in that space and likewise as staff members if i'm talking to other academics a, a traditional academic journal tends to be the middle point where i go to meet other academics but if i'm trying to talk to the world more widely or if i'm trying to talk to a group of elementary school students or what have you These forms of digital storytelling give me so many more options to speak to them in ways that engage them, that make them as excited about my research and my content as I am. There's a lot of potential for this kind of storytelling work to be integrated into other other disciplines across the university. So yes, I think that there's plenty of opportunity for further exploration and application of this, of this kind of work.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I think we're inclined to, to underestimate the power of storytelling as academics and people who've been brought up with writing down their research results.
1: Yeah. I think something to keep in mind as well is when, when we talk about media, the word media is the plural of, of the word medium, which means middle, right? It is a middle ground. And for a long time, books have been that middle ground. They've been the kind of meeting space for readers and authors. And and that's that's worked, that's been fine, but these digital media give us so many different kinds of middle grounds that we can use. And and I think that's really exciting.
0: While I'm listening to you, I'm thinking um, the University of Leeds is embarking on a really um, yeah, wide, wide-ranging strategy around student learning and student experience, we're going to move away from students being passive and listening to lectures to much more group work, and one of the main advantages, there are many, but one that I really like, is that students can then bring their own lived experiences, their backgrounds into the classroom and into the teamwork and it draws students from all kinds of backgrounds into being much more active participants and puts them in a really good place for graduate employment, employment and work and their lives after they leave the university. And this sounds like a really, really great example of that kind of thinking. Do you agree?
1: I absolutely agree. When I heard about these changes that were being proposed, I admit I was a little bit scared. It sounds like a lot of work. It re- it requires a lot of kind of overhaul in the way that we teach now, right? Because we are serious academics. We, you know, we are professionals. So we we have this like idea that teaching means somebody at the front of the room and the students are all sitting there absorbing all of our wisdom. And, you know, I have a lot of wisdom to offer. So, but at the end of the day, we learn as much from our students as they learn from us. And I think these kinds of changes really allow us to explicitly recognize the value of these students' perspectives and the value of their stories. I also think it's just, it's time to prepare our students for the world of employment and the world after university. They'll need to learn how to communicate and how to use these technologies and to set themselves apart from other applicants. They need to have kind of a portfolio of work that says, Hey, I have these soft skills. I have these transferable skills, and I've had time to experiment in a safe space.
0: I think you're so right. And and it sounds like you're already doing everything that we're going to be steering towards. This is just a great example of that kind of philosophy. So I was wondering to take it one step further into what the university is doing, Uh, as you know, we're also embarking on digital transformation, not just in education, but also in our research and societal outreach. And that's why I think digital literacy, not just for our students, but also for the general community outside of the university, is such an important theme. And and how do you see your ideas fitting into that bigger digital transformation movement, uh, if I may call it that, in our, in our university?
1: Obviously, digital media means a lot of things. There are a lot of digital technologies. And there are quite frankly, some things that work really well as they are, we don't need to do a huge overhaul across the board. But I think it's important for us to reflect on, you know, where do we want to go? So as part of a digital transformation, what are we transforming to, it helps to have a sort of idea um, of the end goal in order to do that you have to figure out what you're transforming from so that requires a lot of critical self-reflection as individuals within the university but also institutionally it requires this kind of audit of what is working what should we continue doing and a lot of that won't be digital and that is absolutely fine but it also requires us to acknowledge what we could do better um, and and where can we improve and it might mean that digital technologies can help us improve. It might mean that digital technologies won't help, but we need to think about what we are doing now and what do we want to be doing in the future.
0: Yeah. No, and I think it's great that as teachers we're allowed not to always know everything and not to be the, the sage on the stage, but the guide on the side. This is not something. I don't know I what up, you're, you're really talking rattle. about,
1: Simone. I know everything. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that that phrase, having that guide on the side and being there to support students as they grow and direct their own learning experience, because the students are, they're smart, right? And we need to give them credit for how smart and how motivated they are. And as much as I would love to say that I actually do know everything, I, I don't. And I learn so much <laughs> from them.
0: Yeah, I know. I know that's exactly how you feel. This sounds wonderful. I want to ask you about a project that's not yours, but that you mentioned explicitly in your essay, and it sounded absolutely fascinating. And if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's around something called Algo Algorave. Is that how I pronounce it? I'm not even sure how to say it.
1: Yeah. Algorave is, uh, is what that's called.
0: Okay. Would you, would you say a bit more about that? Because I think it's a great example of how really good scholarly work that's innovative and new actually can change communities and change people's lives in very tangible ways. Um, So, so could you talk a little bit about the project, your colleague's project?
1: Yeah, this is, I think it's a fabulous project as well. It's led by Dr. Joanne Armitage, who is a lecturer in the School of Media and Communication with me. And Joanne is an Algorave artist herself. So Algorave is an amalgamation of two words, algorithm. So algo and rave. So kind of like a dance rave. And what she does is she goes to these clubs and she programs in front of the dance floor and the code is projected onto a screen. And as she codes, it's the code that makes the music. So she's making this computer generated music that people are then dancing to. And, coding is commonly seen as a masculine activity. And we we see this, right? We see that STEM subjects, so science and maths and technology subjects are often male dominated. And that creates kind of a weird environment for women who are doing Algorave because this is very masculine activity you now have women joining. And there are a lot of issues when it comes to women's senses of safety, women's senses of belonging in these communities. And what Joanne has done is she has run a series of workshops with women to teach them how to code and how to do Algorave specifically. So a lot of these women have never coded before. They've certainly never done Algorave, but this is an opportunity for them to learn coding skills and to get a little bit creative. So, You're learning coding as you're doing these tasks that allow you to explore the potentials of code and to express yourself and make the music that you want to make. And she's documented this work in an open access, so publicly available article called Spaces to Fail In. It's in a journal called Dance Cult that's online. And what she's saying throughout the article is that these women, really do benefit from these women-specific coding spaces. They feel like they're part of a community, they feel a sense of belonging, and they are learning new skills in a kind of playful way. Um, The thing about Algorave is you can't do it wrong. So even if it doesn't sound the way that you want it to sound like, it still sounds pretty cool um so uh yeah joanne's work is absolutely amazing and she's still active in this space if you look up joanne armitage on youtube you'll find some videos of her at these at these parties coding and making some really banging music
0: that sounds absolutely wonderful I, I must say i'm tempted to to try
1: simone i fully support you please please do <laughs>
0: yeah I, I, I think i'll have to do something here so I'll, I'll I'll start by looking at the the YouTube videos. It sounds absolutely wonderful. And what a great example of how, how research work and scholarly work can be so innovative and so meaningful to, to people in the community, in this case, women in the community. Absolutely. Um, I think we're sort of getting to the end of this interview. It's it's sad because it feels like I want to talk to you for another hour. It's all absolutely wonderful. But I want to give you an opportunity for sort of like an overarching final question. I mean, you, you're one of the world changers now because you were invited to write an essay and. And we publish your essay as part of this collection. Um so you're your University of Leeds world changer. And I'd like for you to say a little bit, um, and you don't have to do it in a minute, just whatever time you need, um, about how how, in your view, understanding of digital literacy can help us as a university, as an organization, um, to play a part in making the world a better place. Because I think that's what universities need to do, and it's certainly a very big part of the 10-year the strategy at the University of Leeds. So please, um, yeah, your perspective on how your work can help.
1: I think the thing about the phrase world changers is that it doesn't specify if you're changing the world for the better or for the worse. And I think, <laughs> I think it, it's... It, it's useful to consider if we get this wrong there's a, we can change the world for the worse and I think it's important for us to figure out what what we can do as a community to work towards better and meaningful and impactful change if we want to change the world for the better we need to figure out how digital technologies can serve us. We need to make sure that we are providing people with opportunities to learn how to use those technologies, to tell their stories the way that they want to be told, to figure out how to best communicate our knowledge and insight. And we need to change the world together.
0: That is wonderful. What a great way to end this interview. Um, it, it's been absolutely great to talk to you. Um, I think University of Leeds should be very happy that they have you as part of their community. I know you're going to be doing some amazing uh, work in, in the next few years and beyond. I feel very privileged that I'll be able to to watch you and see what you're going to be doing. Thank you so much, Leah, for this, this fascinating half hour, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from the University of Leeds. To find out more about the work of our early career researchers and to read essays written by World Changer researchers, please go to the World Changers page on the university website. Details can be found in the information that accompanies this podcast.